uh, if you're a person that's asked a lot of questions, uh, again, th- this book will ca- <laughs> just going to cause you to think like crazy. Uh, it's going to cause you to actually look at some stuff. You know, there, uh, even sometimes just simple little stuff that we that we've read over. You know, I mean, like I I remember growing, growing up in church. How many sermons I heard in my life where the preacher get preaching and he gets spit into the second row, and you know, all all of a sudden in the middle of his preaching, he'd say, "Just like the three Hebrew children who said that God will deliver us, and even if He doesn't, we're still going to serve Him." But actually, it actually doesn't say that in the scriptures at all. Actually, uh, like the NIV has a horrible translation in that. But when it's talking about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it it actually and I. I love like more the New King James in there. It says this that that uh, they're told by the ruler, if you don't bow your knee, you're going to burn. And then the scripture says the three Hebrew children then tell them, if that be so, if what be so, if if we don't bow our knee, we're going to burn. And he said, if that be so, our God is able and He will deliver us. But if not. If not what? Not if he doesn't deliver us, but whether or not you throw us in the fire. If not, we're not going to bend our knee because it doesn't make any sense for you to declare our God is able and he will and then turn around and be double-minded and say, but even if he doesn't. But you know how many sermons I've heard? We've used that as a, as, as a way out to show people their unbelief is okay. Well, you know, we're going to serve God, but even if he doesn't come through, we're still going to serve him. That's actually not what that means at all. What it's saying is if you throw us in the fire, we're not going to bow our knee. And if you don't, if you, if you throw us in the fire, our God's going to deliver us. But even if you don't, don't throw us in the fire, then we're not going to bow our knee. Because if you throw us in the fire and we bow, we ain't going to have a knee. All right. It's going to be all burned up and it's going to be ashes. But we take verses like that. And because the NIV says, but even if he doesn't, they added that in there. Some of the translations are absolutely horrible. And some of us need to understand the bias that goes into so many of these translations. I've actually been sharing, when I was here last year, I shared a message on Abbaology, that God's trying to get us from theology to Abbaology to be able to view everything through the lens of a good father. And, and the one thing that I, I've realized with that is, you know, First John tells us that we have an advocate with the father, an advocate. But you know what the word advocate is in the Greek language? It's the Greek word paraclete, which is nearly always in the Greek translated as helper or comforter. But they took the one meaning of the word and the translators, because most of them were Calvinists, uh, they took the one word and made it a judicial term that we've got a lawyer with the father. So and this idea of that God, Jesus is up in heaven and he's litigating in our behalf, rather than realizing that we have a comforter with the father. We have a helper along with the Father that when we sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, what's he com- he's not comforting us in our sin. What's his comfort? He's telling us we're better than we're acting. We've got a, a helper with the Father who's saying, listen, I've already cleansed you. I've already forgiven you. I'm here to help you overcome your sin. Rather than we've got this lawyer up in heaven and there's this whole judicial picture and this thing going on. And I shared that when I was here last year. That whole view of God is so jacked up. Same as the, uh, the courts of heaven and help me, Jesus. Um, we've, been, we've been stuck so much in all that old covenant stuff. I don't have to go litigate for anything. I've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness to the knowledge of him. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. If I've got to go up to heaven and I got to go through all this rigmarole to walk in any blessing whatsoever. I mean, you might as well just go back under law because that's some exhausting stuff up in there. And you don't have to go anywhere to get any mantle. I don't need any man's mantle. I've got the Holy Spirit's mantle. That is the best man. Hallelujah. 
I, I got to stay focused. Lord, I apologize. I got to. But anyway, grab a hold of the book. Also back there, those four USBs, I, I do a special. If you buy them separate, it's like $165. Um, but if you buy one of everything, it's $100. It's 62 hours of teaching. The yellow series is called Love and Order. Uh, there's nine hours on the love of God, and then there's six hours on fivefold ministry, finding your gifting, your purpose, your calling. Uh, then the red series, there's 14 hours on the saving of the soul and the renewing of the mind. The Bible talks that much about it. Peter said, the end of your faith is the salvation of your soul, not the beginning of your faith. I've had preachers for years say, man, we had, we had 10 souls last, saved last week. I said, well, praise God. So you've had 10 people in your church at least five to seven, eight years. They've been growing and maturing. Their mind is no longer carnal. Their will is no longer rebellious, and their emotions are no longer warped because that's what it means to get a soul saved. But what happened is you got spirits that awokened, and, and, and they got born again and they came alive. But to get a soul saved, that, that's a discipleship process. That's, that's why you work out your salvation. You don't work for your salvation. You're not working it in. You're working all of this stuff out of you. It's finished inside you. Now it's working out of you. And the end of your faith is the saving of your soul. And there's something that happens as you grow and mature and your mind is renewed and you're transformed and you begin to walk in everything that God says you are and everything that he promised you. And that doesn't happen just because you prayed a magic prayer. I mean, you know, you pray the prayer, and, and man, you're whole and you're complete in him, but now you got to work all this out because now you got to convince your mind of what your spirit already knows. Uh, matter of fact, I was told my whole life, well, you know what? They got it in their head. They need to get it in their heart. The truth is you already got everything in your heart. You need to get it in your head. The problem is not your heart. you got a finished work in your spirit, but now you need to get what's in your spirit to spill out on your body and needs to get in your mind, your will, your emotions, and your thinking because as a man thinks, so is he, not as a man believes. You can believe one thing in your heart, but if your head is arguing with your heart, you're going to end up doing what your head is saying rather than what your heart is actually saying. That, that, that's why we work out our salvation. It's an inside-out job. It's not an outside-in job. So anyway, hallelujah. But that, 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 there's, there's some rich stuff in that series. The Blue Series, there's 14 hours on how to understand the scriptures, how to study them. Uh, how to, you know, there's more than 300 figures of speech in, in the Bible. I mean, the Bible is not a children's book. I've had people, I've had preachers try to argue with me, can we turn the mic up a little bit? Like, I'm going to wear myself out if I can't hear myself. Uh, as I preached already this morning, and I, I know I'm already loud enough, I'll pull it down, I promise. It's just, I, I can already tell I'm, I'm straining and I'm tired because I was up all night. God bless you. <laughs> oh, oh, see? I guess, Peppa Pig. Ooh, I just felt some air too, hallelujah. That was a nice, nice breeze come in. Okay. We have more than 300, I've, I've had preachers try to argue with me and they, and they said this to me. They said, the Bible is so simple, a fifth grader can understand it. I said, I agree. If you're a Jewish fifth grader in the first century. If you're an American fifth grader, 21st century, it's not near as clear and easy as you think. There's all kinds of nuances. There's all kinds of language. You got to understand culture. There's so many things that we don't understand. And it's not just what it says. There's original languages that have different meanings and different understandings. And, and I've got like 14 hours and I walk you through the little bit of what I shared this morning about the difference between God actually saying it and God breathing on it. Uh, I deal with also on there too, because it's, it's very important for us to understand how to have a proper relationship with the Bible. The Bible is not the fourth person of the Godhead. All right. I, I love what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said that the Catholic Church had a person pope, but then the Protestants made a paper pope. 
So they still had all final authority going to a book. And, and the mantra of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. The problem is there's no scripture for it. There's actually no scripture that says scripture alone is your final authority. The, the, the truth is Paul actually talks about the traditions that he passed down. The early church, they had the inner witness of the Holy Spirit as the first thing that you followed. Secondly, the scriptures were there as a parameter and a protection. It was an authority, but then there was the community of the saints because you were a part of a body because the Eastern church to this day does not believe. They believe what Paul said. Paul said scripture is not for private interpretation. So it's not what you think it means. They actually interpret the Bible in community, because it's all about the common sense of what we all together agree with, because if all I do is listen to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, it's very subjective, because I can hear wrong. And if the inner witness of the Holy Spirit is going against the scriptures, then I ought to pray a little bit more about what I think I'm hearing. And then if I get around the community and the, the gifts that God's placed on my life and people that I trust, and they say, you know what, that's not jiving with us. Maybe you ought to pray about that a little bit longer because it's all there for protection, but it's a three-strand cord that's very important for us to understand. It's never just the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. It's never just the Bible. Uh, because the Bible is subjective also, because you can interpret it a thousand different ways depending on what you want. And I learned a long time ago, you don't just read the Bible, the Bible reads you. Let me tell you something, when I was an angry preacher, I saw all those angry verses. The Bible read me more than, a, than when I had a revelation of the love of God, all of a sudden all those verses I never paid attention to jumped off the page. I mean, I, I, I used to love Jesus going in and cleaning out the temple. That was my Jesus. He went in and kicked some tail. That's the Jesus I serve. Totally missed the whole point of the meaning of it because I was going to serve a tough Jesus. I wasn't going to serve that greasy, gray, sloppy, agape, lovey-dovey Jesus. That wasn't the one. But it's amazing how the scriptures find out who you are. Are. And they reflect back on you. They're a Rorschach test. They actually show you more about you than, than sometimes even just about God because there's a reflection back on you. And so I got 14 hours on that. There's just rich stuff. Then the, the white one, it's called Identified. There's like nine hours in your identity in Christ, how God sees you. And there's four hours in grace and faith, four hours in sonship. There's just some rich stuff. And then check out my website. Again, I have this as an audio book on the website. And then I also have four e-courses up there that are some really good stuff. Uh, uh, there's there's five six hours on really understanding the gospel. There is five and a half hours on uh, what the last days were actually the last days of in eschatology. Uh, then there's six hours uh, on the e-course called What the Hell, and that one is all about hell. If you actually want to know what the Bible actually says about hell and what the meanings actually are, uh, then it's actually best that you actually study. Do, listen, do, do you realize that to a first century Jew, when John wrote Revelation and he said that death and hell are going to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone to a first century Jew, they would not have been thinking about the afterlife, but the Dead Sea. Uh, do, do you know that the Dead Sea was called the lake of fire literally for thousands of years? Because the Dead Sea had such a high sulfur content, it would spontaneously combust and did it up to about five, 600 years ago. And this is actually secular history. The Persians, the Egyptians, the Medes, uh, the Assyrians, whenever they would come by the Dead Sea, they would say that Jerusalem, it stinks like a stench and it smells like sulfur because of the content. And literally fires would burst up all over the sea. Well, when it says death and hell, death and Gehenna are cast into the lake of fire or death in the grave were cast into the lake of fire and brimstone that actually in 70 AD, 1.2 million Jews were slaughtered and destroyed. Their bodies were dumped in hell in the Valley of Hinnom in Gehenna with the Brook Kidron flowing through it and their ashes would have been carried down to the Dead Sea. They went, hallelujah. 
death and hell are cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, that doesn't mean there's not spiritual meaning on top of it, but there's historical stuff that most of us have never heard anything about whatsoever that actually has some wonderful revelation in it that will literally cause your Bible to literally come alive. Do you realize that when Judas hung himself, he hung himself in a field called the field of blood, and it was actually in hell. It was in the Valley of Hinnom. It was in Gehenna. He hung himself in hell, and it said when he hung himself, his bowels opened up, and everything that was in his stomach spilled out all over hell, and what was in his stomach was the bread and the wine. <laughs> Woo! The new covenant spilled all over hell and just was about to bring some redemption to it, even right there. So, listen, there's some wonderful stuff. I, I'm telling you, there's some rich stuff in there. And not just because I taught it, I'm telling you, I researched that thing for about 15 years because when my daughter was nine years old, I was getting ready to preach a conference. And the guy that preached the night before me was an old-fashioned hell and brimstone preacher. And my, my kids had heard me talk about it, but they'd never experienced it. And my daughter at nine, 10 years old, we go up to the hotel room. She climbs up my lap. She said, Daddy, that man that spoke tonight has problems. And I said, what do you mean, sis? She said, he thinks that our Jesus, who told us to not render evil for evil, to love our enemies, is going to torture all of his. She said, Daddy, wouldn't that make Jesus a little bit of a liar or a hypocrite? <laughs> I was like, ugh. I'd never thought about it. And that started me on a journey to say, you know what? I probably need to find out what the Bible actually teaches about some of this stuff rather than just regurgitate English without understanding what the Greek and the Hebrew is actually talking about and understanding first century language and the culture of that day. And I'm telling you, it, it, it shook me to my core when I actually took the time to study. And most people would rather not know because we love our hell. We want that bully to get it that hurt us. We, we love the idea of retribution. We're going to talk about it here in just a few minutes. We love that stuff. We love punishment rather than restoration. We love a punitive God rather than one that has a heart to restore. As I mentioned this morning, we love the idea of the scapegoat God and not the sheep, the lamb God. We, we want that one that says those people stay away from them. Uh, but the heart of God is incredibly, incredibly inclusive. And his heart is all that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Uh, incredible heart. So anyway, take your Bibles. Turn with me to John 18. John 18. Let me get to my assignment for tonight. Uh, please check all that out. There's some rich stuff back there. I believe it will be a blessing to you. I'm going to start in John 18, starting in verse number and four, eighteen four. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered and said, I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you've given me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Melchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given to me? Uh, let me give you just, just a few moments of a little bit of where this came from. Nearly uh, every year around November and December, I, I, I spend time, of course, it's the holidays, so I'm, I'm able to be home a little bit more in my office. 
and, and I'm always asking the Holy Spirit during those times and seasons, just in my travels for the next year, kind of what are you saying to the body as a whole? Like what is, what is like a message that applies almost anywhere I go? And what is one of the things that you're declaring? And I, I was sitting in my office and I, w- I was very frustrated, to be honest with you, kind of a, a real holy frustration. And what I was frustrated about was it seems like in America, the church, rather than gaining influence, seems almost more like it's losing influence. Not around the world. The truth is around the world, the gospel is increasing like crazy. You know, the fastest growing church in the world right now is the underground church in Iran, led by women apostles. Women apostles in a Muslim country. I mean, right now, all the upheaval going on over there is because the women are standing up, taking off their hair pieces and everything else. I mean, it's like a radical movement right now in the Muslim world with women. It's powerful. China still for years, it's been like, you know, 5,000 people a week, 10,000 people a week being swept into the kingdom. And so the kingdom is increasing all over the world, but it feels like in America, I was like, Lord, we, we, have, we have 24-hour Christian radio, 24-hour Christian television. We got churches on every other corner. We got podcasts coming out of our ears. We've got things going on like crazy. And rather than gaining influence, rather than people running to us, it seems like a lot of folks are running away from us. I was like, Lord, why is that? And it, it took about 10 days. About 10 days later, I heard the Holy Spirit whisper to me. He said, I want you to go back and relook at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, go back and look at the Macarius life. The word, the word there in the Greek that Jesus used for blessed, Macarius, it actually came from an island in the Mediterranean that was literally this beautiful, lush place full of fruit and palm trees. It would be like us talking about if you really want to live the blessed life, you live in Maui. You know, I mean, you know, you, you go to the Bahamas, man, because that's where, where God chose to live. At least that's what they tell you in the Bahamas. I mean, this beautiful, beautiful place that everybody would want to spend some time in. And, and Jesus chose that word when he's talking about this blessed life. And so I went back through and I began to, because it had been over 20 years since I taught on it. But uh, all of a sudden, it, it was just exploding in me to study the meek inherit the earth. I got to be honest with you, I've never really spent much time studying that because normally uh, meekness is normally not something I think about because it's normally not what I get described as. Uh, You know, normally when we think meekness, we think, well, that person at the party, they're real sweet and kind. They kind of sit in the corner. They're kind of, they're meek and mild. And we, we think of meekness sometimes as weakness. But when you actually study it in the Greek language, it's actually comes from a military term that means to sheath the sword. True meekness is not weakness. Meekness actually says this, I have a sword, I have authority, I have power, I have an ability to take you out, but I choose to be self-controlled enough and loving enough to keep the sword in the sheath when I could pull it out and bring harm to you. And he said, who inherits the earth are those who are meek. He said, the reason my church has not been inheriting the earth is most of my church don't even have a sheath. They, they don't even found it. Matter of fact, the sword is out swinging normally on a regular basis. And let me tell you, in the last two years, the swords have been out. 
I mean, I'm telling you, I know people that have been friends for 50 years who don't talk anymore because of the elections of the last couple of years. I mean, I mean, not even a discussion anymore. All of a sudden, rather than, rather than faithful dialogue where we can sit and still talk as friends and agree to disagree, it's like, no, no, you're on this side, I'm on that side, we're no longer friends anymore, and the sword comes out, and we spend our time cutting and attacking, and we wonder why we're losing influence when rather than demonstrating meekness which is not weakness, but real strength, that sword has been, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but man, when I was growing up, and not even when I was growing up, even over the last 20, 25 years, I remember my kids came home when they were teenagers from a concert, and the person that took them all that was helping out with the youth ministry at the time wouldn't let them stop to McDonald's to eat. And my kids got home. They're like, dad, they wouldn't let us stop at McDonald's. Everybody wanted to go to McDonald's. I said, why wouldn't they let you stop at McDonald's? I said, well, we're boycotting them for some reason. I called that youth leader on the phone. I said, listen, I'm not here to tell you something right now. Uh, you don't put your little personal little pet peeves on my kids. Take the kids to McDonald's. They're like, well, they, they support something LGBTQ. I said, I said, so does every other company that you support. You just don't even know it because they're there to make money. All right. I mean, if, if, if you, if you're not going to support something that disagrees with something you disagree with, you better buy yourself some cattle in your backyard, better buy some chickens, you better buy some wool uh, and some sheep, and you better start growing some cotton because there's going to be somebody that's going to do something that you don't agree with. But it's like in the American church, if we're not fighting someone, we just don't know what to do. Because we got to be against somebody. We got we got to fight somebody. There's got to be the other. There's got to be an us versus them, or we almost don't even know don't even know how to function. I remember uh, back here in September of 2020, I I got an email from one of the partners of our ministry who'd supported us for 10 years, and just five years ago they sent me an email that said the message you carry has transformed our family, our life, our marriage. It's been so amazing. We're so honored to know you and partner with you. And in 2020, in September, I get an email from them, and the wife said, my husband and I have a couple questions for you. Number one, we want to know who are you voting for in this next election. Number two, we want to know, are you proud of who you're voting for? And number three, we're a little put off that you, with with the platform that you have, that you've not been encouraging people to vote for Donald J. Trump, because this is not a situation of Republican versus Democrat. This is good versus evil. I answered her back. I said, number one, none of your business. I said, number two, I've never been proud of any politician I've ever voted for in my entire life. They're politicians. It's normally the lesser of two evils. Normally you vote a platform, if you're honest, rather than just a person. I said, and number three, the gospel has its own politics. And the moment I, as a preacher of the gospel, take sides, I can no longer be an apostle because Paul said, I become all things to all men that I might reach some. And the moment you take sides one way or another on any certain type of subject, you ostracize those on the other side. And the truth is, listen, do you know that at Antioch, when they first started calling Christians Christians, they were accused of being Christians? That, that, that was not, the word Christian was a political phrase that Rome gave the people of the way because they were so frustrated because they wouldn't choose sides. They were the ones right smack dab down the middle who were there to reach as many people as they could. And so they said, well, we got to call them something. We're going to call them all Christians. And they accused them of being like Christ. When's the last time we got accused of being a Christian? <laughs> That's a, that's a whole other ball game than just coming up with some type of phrase. Let's see, the, the, the sword has been out. The sword has been out. See, this is something, 
Peter missed. Matter of fact, when you go to the book of Luke and you read this in the book of Luke, I chose John because it uses the name Malchus, and I'm going to get there in just a minute. But when you study in the book of Luke, the chapter before, Jesus is having a discussion with the 12, and he said this. He said he's getting ready to go to Gethsemane, which is this story that I read to you. And, and he tells the 12 something. He said, when I sent you out the first time, I sent you out two by two, and I told you not to take an extra script. Don't take any extra clothes. Don't bring any money. And I don't want you to bring a sword. But now I want you to bring some extra clothes, bring some money, and I want you to bring a sword. And one of the disciples said, we have two. I've always wondered, who was that? You know, I mean, I want you to think about this. Now, when I read my Bible, this stuff just like pops off the page at me like crazy because it's how my mind works. When I read scripture and, and Jesus is telling 12 people to bring a sword and one guy says, we got two. And then Jesus says something even crazier. He says, that's enough. Enough for what? I mean, you just told 12 individuals to bring swords. One guy says, we got two. I think it was probably Peter. God bless Peter. I mean, it's just, that was Peter. Peter's the first one out of the boat. Peter's the one you hear before you see. Amen. He was a sanguine to the core, no doubt about it. But anyways. <laughs> so we got two and Jesus says, that's enough. But then Jesus explains what he means. So that it might be fulfilled by the prophet that he be numbered among the transgressors. Because you see, if you don't understand some history, what you'll miss in that whole thing, because I know all kinds of Christians that love that verse because they think Jesus is saying the second amendment is cool. Relax. I have a gun. Jesus gave us, Jesus said, he even told him to bring a sword. It's like, yeah, but you didn't read the rest of the story and you didn't know the context because if you actually study the context in that story, what happened is Rome, when they conquered Israel, they allowed them to worship their God. But what Rome chose to do is they realized after their first year that two to three million Jews come every single Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles to worship. And they only had a few garrisons at Caesarea of Philippi. And so Pilate is really nervous because now during Passover, you got a couple million Jews marching through the streets, having a party, singing the song of Moses, the horse and the rider is he thrown into the sea. And he's, they're walking by their oppressors and they're singing about their God delivering them from their oppressors. And so Rome said, this could get ugly super quick. So Rome made a law that anytime the three major feasts or seven feasts manifested three times a year come together, Rome said that if you have 10 or more men with two or more swords, it's considered insurrection. And you would be arrested as a criminal because Jesus had to go to the cross to fulfill a verse that he had to go to the cross as a criminal, not as a martyr so that he could relate with the worst of humanity. That whole thing has nothing to do with God giving you permission to now take up a sword and bring harm to somebody. It was literally fulfilling a prophecy. But you see, Peter missed the whole point. Peter used the sword. Jesus never told him to use the sword. He said to bring the sword. There was a reason for bringing it. It was to fulfill a prophecy. Peter takes out the sword, cuts off Melchizedek ear. And let me just submit something to you. All right. You don't just try to cut off somebody's ear because if you're just going for someone's ear, then you're chopping down. You don't ever do that because the sword will get stuck in their shoulder blade. I'm telling you, he was going for his head and, and, and Melchus pulled a Neo from the matrix. He was, you know, cause I'm telling you, Peter was going for his head and he ducked and got his ear chopped off. And Jesus says, put away the sword. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Peter put it back in its sheath because it's the meek that inherit the earth. And Peter, you're not demonstrating meekness right now. 
You see, Peter was doing what most of us would have done. Peter was being biblical. It was biblical for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was biblical that if someone is harming you, you can get back after them. But you see, Peter wasn't being Christ-like. I've said for years now that I would rather have a thousand Christ-like people in a county than a hundred thousand biblical ones. Jesus had no problem being unbiblical in order to be Christ-like. The woman caught in the act of adultery, it was biblical for Jesus to take out a stone and stone her, but he chose to show Christ-likeness instead. Jesus was never supposed to touch a leper. It was unclean. He, was, he wasn't supposed to touch lepers. That was against the law. It was unbiblical for him to touch a leper, but he was willing to be unbiblical in order to be Christ-like. I, I wonder sometimes if we've so gotten focused. I mentioned it this morning. I get nervous when people say, we need to get back to being biblical. And I'm like, which part? Because there's all kinds of stuff in that book that I don't do. A whole lot of stuff in there I don't agree with. I'm telling you right now, I ain't going to dash no baby's heads on rocks for nobody, even if God tells me. I'm just, I'm just, listen, I'm just here to tell you right now uh, that I'm not going to, I ate it today, I ain't gonna, I'm not going to stop eating shrimp for nobody. I like bottom feeders. I like my shrimp. I like lobster. I like scallops. Climbs, I, oysters raw. Yeah. Uh, they at least need to be baked for me. I know, uh, you know, I don't want to swallow a loogie. I'm sorry. It's just I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah, more for him. So we have, we have a lot of people that are living biblically that are not living Christ-like. Because if, now I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying being biblical is bad. What I'm saying is if you're truly Christ-like, you'll be truly Biblical. Because you'll understand the whole purpose of the scriptures in the first place was to point to the Christ. And your heart is going to be about helping people and, and at, at times doing some things that seem like maybe, truth is, Peter was doing what he was taught to do. But Peter missed out on something. Peter didn't realize that it was easier to kill for Jesus than it is to die for him. That's what religion does. It's easier to kill. I told you earlier, I told you this morning that most people in America tend to prefer in the church Moses over Jesus. A lot of people prefer secure slavery over scary freedom. There's a security in that slavery. There's this safety that we feel. And yet that sword comes out and, and we start swinging that sword. You know, Jesus one day is standing before Pilate in the chapter even before and Pilate says, if you're a king, where's your kingdom? And Jesus says something powerful. He said, my kingdom is not of or from this world. It is for this world, but its genesis does not come from violence and anger and, and everything that your genesis is. My kingdom is not of or from this world. For if it were, my servants would fight. That word fight means to struggle, to strive, to fight, and to contend. That just described most of my life growing up in the Pentecostal church. Most of what we did was struggle, strive, fight, contend, get a hold of the horns of the altar. You got to strive to get in the holy place. You got to strive for me. We were struggling and striving for everything. But yet Jesus said, if my kingdom were from here, my servants would fight. But because my kingdom is not from here, my servants don't fight. 
Mm. You're bringing up that Jesus stuff again. Because it's easier to fight. Uh, Do you know that we don't have any examples in about the first 300 years or so of the church that they ever picked up a sword after Peter? Do you know that the Christians willingly laid down their lives for others? You know, me growing up in the Pentecostal charismatic church, I remember one of our favorite verses was Acts 1 verse 8. You shall receive power. Just, you know. Because we couldn't just say power. Power. You know, if you, didn't, if you didn't put a powerful P behind it, there was no power to it. Just, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and, and I remember being taught that you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness to your neighbor. But it dawned on me several years ago that uh, when I became a grandparent eight years ago, if you sit down next to me at a mall, within 30 seconds, you're going to see some pictures of my granddaughter. I don't need any power to tell you about someone I love. (laughs) You don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to share Jesus with people because someone you're in love with, you can't wait to tell people. But that word there in Acts 1-8 has nothing to do with witnessing to your neighbor. The word witness is the Greek word martos. That's where we get the word martyr from. And Jesus was literally saying, you need the power of the Holy Spirit because when opposition comes your way, you're going to have to be willing to lay down your life. They had a gospel not just to live for, but they had one to die for. Maybe we've not been changing the world because we've given people something to live for, but not something to die for. My, my wife thinks I'm, I'm sick for saying this. My kids love it. But I have my dream death. I've literally had a discussion with God about my death. I said, I want to I wanna be able to see uh, my great-grandchildren. I want to live a good full life. And then I want to be preaching in a third world country and be martyred in my 90s, you live a good full life, and I'll, I'll take the martyr's crown. I remember saying that. My wife's like, you're sick. My kids are like, that's cool, Dad. I'm like, that's awesome. That's something we'd like to tell our grandkids about. And I'm like, amen. <laughs> I'd rather be preaching the gospel in a place that no one's ever been and die, for, die with him and die for him rather than try to kill Laid down our life. Do you know that the Christians in the early church, they were known that while they were being thrown to the lions, they would shout out in these arenas, Jesus loves you and we love you. Jesus forgives you and we forgive you. And while lions were tearing him to pieces, they were singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They willingly laid down their life. That was the power of the Holy Spirit they needed because they literally were about to lose everything. We we think... We need the power of the Holy Spirit to tell our neighbor. Well, if it's the Holy Spirit that helps you tell your neighbor about something, the Jehovah Witnesses do a whole lot better job than we do. (laughs) Them Latter-day Saints boys, man, they're out there on their bikes and they're huffing it, man. I mean, man, the power of the Holy Ghost must be all over them (laughs) because... Y'all don't, you know I'm teasing, right? Okay, now watch. Peter, put away, put away the sword. The sword is easier. It's easy to take out the sword. It's easy to start cutting. It's easy to start fighting. Let me tell you, man, I I can preach this because 
for a lot of years. I grew up in a town called Bay City, Michigan. Before there was anything called MMA fighting, there was something called the Tough Man Contest. And the Tough Man Contest, before MMA was ever made legal, the Tough Man Contest was the one thing, and that started in my town, Art Door, who pretty much runs Bay City, where I grew up. And in Bay City, it was a lumber town. Matter of fact, how many of you have ever heard the story of, of um, uh, was it Babe the Blue Ox and Paul Bunyan, the big logger, based on a man by the name of Babe LaFromboise, who was a seven foot four, 500-pound logger from Bay City, Michigan, who literally could take down trees with like six or seven swipes. He was a known brawler. I graduated with about 10 LaFromboises. It was all now his kin that had gone on. And he was, he was killed, famous story in our town. He was killed because he beat this guy up in a bar down on the river. And the guy came back in later, slit his throat and dumped him in the river and killed him. I mean, so the town I grew up in has more bars per capita than any city in the nation. And all we did was get drunk, high, and fight. That's all we did. Love doing it. Just brawls constantly. This smile I have is not because I'm a redneck. I had stuff knocked out. I did stupid stuff because it's just all that we did. I love fighting. And then at 19, I have this awakening and this experience with Christ. And I go to Bible school and all of a sudden I realize someone gets on my nerves and I'm like, I probably shouldn't have hit anybody. Because I don't think Jesus would be all right with hitting people. But I found out that I didn't have to hit somebody. I realized I had a near photographic memory and, and I was decently smart. And when I read something, I hardly ever forgot it. And I realized I was smarter than you. And I learned I could fight you in different ways. I could make you look dumb and I look smart. It's still the same spirit. It's still fighting. It's just a different way. Nowadays, we have fighting on keyboards. Come on, we've got, we've got armchair theologians and armchair, armchair politicians, everybody fighting stuff they'd never tell anybody face-to-face. -face. They got no problem saying in the keyboard when no one is in front of them. But it's the same spirit behind it. It's the sword that's coming out because we just feel like we have to be right. And it took me years to figure this out and nearly lost my marriage because I couldn't figure it out. That you have a choice. Do you want to be right or in a relationship? Do you want to be right or in relationship? Because if you just want to be right, good luck. You're probably going to be married two or three times. Hmm? If you really want to be in relationship, you have to realize that it's more important for the relationship than it is you being right. For a lot of years, I didn't get that because I thought, I mean, I was the warrior. I, I would go into churches and straighten up everything they were doing wrong. I've said for years, I'm glad there wasn't a Facebook when I was in my 20s and 30s because I thought I was the sheriff of righteousness. It was my job to straighten everybody's theology out, straighten everybody up. And then you get a little bit older and at 55 now, when someone wants to fight me, I just tell them, you win. I, I have no desire to fight. I've lost all that desire to fight. Now listen, it doesn't mean we don't have opinions. And listen, I don't want you to misunderstand. We need Christians in politics. We need Christians in every facet of society. But how we change the world is not how the world does it. We don't do it through rhetoric and fighting and anger and taking out the sword. We do it through love and service. It's how we go about bringing change that is what's important. We're not the ones out screaming at everybody else. We're the ones that are getting involved in building relationships and we're seeing lives change through love and serving them, not through yelling at them. It just doesn't work. So we have that choice. So I, 
I'll give you just a few testimonies about where I was not too long ago. About 20, 22 years ago, I had one of the elders and his wives in my dad's church. I got done preaching on a Sunday, and they came to the altar, and they said, would you pray for my wife? And I said, what do you need prayer for? She said, I was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And I said, not going to pray for you. She said, why? I said, prayer's not what you need. They said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm a part of the legal board here at the church. And over the last couple of weeks, we went through the giving statements and your tithe has been sporadic. That's why you got cancer. No empathy. I was biblical. I could give you a verse for it. You're cursed by the curse because you weren't doing something. You didn't dot the I and cross the T. And so that's why you got cancer. Literally, I've looked back at that for years in horror, absolute horror. I mean, that was not the heart of Jesus at all. Everybody could say amen to that. Like not even close to it, but that's who I was because I was right. And I was more concerned with being right than being in relationship. It's sad to me, though, that that's where so many in the body are. There's maybe some of you in here or some that will listen to this in the future. You have family members that you're on the outs with. And you want to humble yourself and go work it out. Because you're right. And they're wrong. What's more important? Being right? Or being in relationship? See, I've, I've, I've made up my mind through the years. I've lost way too many relationships because I was way more concerned with being right. I was may, way more concerned with my ideas of justice. And that sword came out. And let me tell you something. If there was anybody that understood this, it was Jesus. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's being unjustly beaten, unjustly crucified. And if anybody could have took out the sword and called 10,000s of angels to wipe everybody out, instead he kept the sword in the sheath and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he kept the sword in the sheath and he inherited the earth because it's easier to take out the sword and start cutting I still remember we had a couple about seven years ago when we still lived in Michigan I ran into them at a restaurant and I said to my wife I need to go talk to them and she said who are they she didn't remember who they were and they'd been a part of my parents church about 10 years before that and back then I was preaching every holiday at my dad's church and they'd been there for about six months. They'd heard me speak a couple of times and they come up after me at one of those services and they said, man, we love when you come. We love the word. We love the passion. And, you know, we, we would love sometimes just to like hang out or go out to a meal with you. And I said, so are you needing some ministry? They're like, well, no. And I'm like, uh, no, we just want to hang out with you. I said, so you want my personal time? They're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, well, do you tithe? They said, why? I said, I don't hang out with cursed people. Aren't you glad I didn't show up here then? <laughs> Listen, I'm just telling you this because I want you to see literally how far. I mean, I was an A personality out of control, almost 100% choleric A personality. My number one love language is acts of service. I loved the law. The law was my life, man. Get in, get out, or get run over. That was my favorite song from the Rainbow Singers. Better get in, get out, or get run over back in the 90s. And you better get in with what I'm doing, get out of my way. I'm going to run you over in Jesus' name because that's obviously what he would do. <laughs> hmm. And I was right. And I had scripture to back it up. 
That's dangerous. But I was missing the whole heart of Jesus. The whole point of all this was the heart of the Father. And I I missed it for so many years because I thought it was my job to straighten everybody up. The truth is I couldn't even straighten myself up. You see, I, I think Peter here is a picture of all of us. We've met Jesus. We've had a revelation of him. But we're still vacillating between two covenants. Peter struggled going back and forth with mixture. Still struggled in his life with ministering to Gentiles, even though Jesus told him to go to the Gentiles. He just, he struggled with it in his mind. He was constantly going back and forth. Paul says, I had to rebuke Cephas to his face because he's over here eating some bacon with all of these, all these Gentiles and the Jews show up and he's acting like he didn't eat bacon, but you know it was all over his breath because you could smell bacon for a, a day and a half. <laughs> and they're probably looking at him like, you hypocrite, man. We smell that bacon all over your breath and you're acting like you didn't eat no bacon. We know you ate some bacon up in there. Peter takes out the sword and rather than heal Melchus's ear, now listen, I'm going to try to land this plane here. Melchus is actually translated reigning king. Melchus is a picture of all of humanity. All of humanity are reigning kings who just don't know the reigning kings. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not an announcement of your sinship. It's an announcement of your sonship. The gospel announces what Christ already did for you 2,000 years ago objectively, but until you subjectively experience it, you don't get to experience what is already true of you objectively in Christ Jesus. And so the beauty of this, that's why Paul, or that's why God takes Peter up on a rooftop and shows him pigs in a blanket and shows him some wonderful Texas barbecue or North or South Carolina or wherever you're close to, uh, but just in Kansas City, just whatever. It was all that good stuff. And he said, I've never eaten any of that. And the revelation he gets from it is, when some Gentiles come the next day and say, come to our place, the revelation Peter said is God showed me not to call any man unclean. I want you to think that through for a minute. The revelation Peter got is God told him not to call any human unclean. There's some huge implications to that. So if no human is unclean, why do we have people acting unclean? It's because they don't know they're unclean. They don't know they're clean. Nobody has informed them of their righteousness. No one's informed them that they're sons of God and they're heirs of the king. No one's informed them that because of what Jesus did for them, because of one man's righteous act, all were made unrighteous. But now because of one man's righteous deed, all were made righteous. That's why our job, Paul said, is to awaken people to righteousness and then they'll stop sinning. He didn't say go around, tell everybody to stop sinning and then awaken righteousness. He said, awaken them to the fact that they're already righteous. Awaken them to the fact that they've already been made righteous in Christ Jesus and that they're clean. The only reason they're acting unclean is because no one told them they were clean. They don't think they're clean. They don't believe they're clean, so they're acting unclean. We have have an earth full of Melchizedek, reigning kings who don't know they're reigning kings. And the sad part is, is rather than being Jesus and healing their hearing, healing their faith, their confidence and their trust, 
most of the church has the sword out. And we're harming their confidence in God and the church and Christ rather than healing it. Let's be honest. Some of you, maybe the first time you start coming to a church like this, you walked in and your ears were hanging all the way down to here because Sunday after Sunday, the preachers took out the sword like Peter and kept cutting off your faith rather than telling you who you were and that you're a son and that you're beloved of God and informing you that you are in union with the Father. Rather than doing that, they took out the sword. And, and, and sincerely, Peter was completely sincere in what he did, but he was constantly, he was cutting off the ear where Jesus says, our job is to heal their faith, heal their trust, not cut it off. Matter of fact, I just want to submit something to you. Itching ear preaching is not too much love and too much grace. First of all, it was Paul that said it, and Paul's telling his protege, Timothy, he tells him in the chapter before, remember everything that I taught you. And then he says, remove from your life all of these Jewish fables and all of this other stuff that you were taught. And he said, for there will come a time where men will gather around them teachers that have itching ears or give them teaching that their itching ears want to hear. And I've heard my whole life, I've been, I've been accused, I'm sure you've been accused of being one of them itching ear preachers. You're just telling people that God loves them. and You're just talking about the goodness of God. That's, you're one of them preachers that Paul warned against. But wait a minute, Paul's the one that coined the gospel, the gospel of grace. Paul, who was the guy who talked about the love of God more than almost anybody else, would not have been telling one of his spiritual sons, don't talk enough about the love of God and the grace of God. I want to just submit to you that actually itching ear preaching is law preaching. Because if your ears are constantly getting chopped off with mixture, it's called coagulation. Your ears are going to be constantly itching. Because ultimately, what people want to hear is tell me what I have to do to get in. Tell me what my own works and righteousness does in order, don't tell me someone else has already done it for me because that means I can't accomplish this on my own. Itching ear preaching is not too much love and too much grace. Itching ear preaching is preaching law and mixture. Good teaching, brother. Hallelujah. So we have a choice. We can either keep the sword in the sheath. Can I just I just say this to you. I get this at least, hope I don't lose some of you with this, but I get this at least, at least twice a month. Someone will contact me, whether through email or on an inbox on Facebook, and they'll say, my, my daughter just came out as a lesbian or my son just came out as gay, and they're getting married and they're having a wedding. Should I go? And I don't hesitate. I say, Absolutely. Because the relationship is more important than being right. The American church, the evangelicals applauded the people in Oregon that wouldn't bake the cake. Good for them. You didn't bake the cake for a gay wedding. But this, this is what we never think about. We don't think this stuff through. But they probably baked 20 cakes for pedophiles who they didn't know had them bake a cake because they were molesting a child by drawing them into their house by giving them a birthday cake. But as long as we don't know about it, then we're good with it. Amen. Y- y'all are getting real quiet on me. See, see we, we, don't, we don't take more than an inch deep with most of this stuff and think it through. Bake the dang cake. 
for crying out loud. Are you kidding me? Go to the wedding. Well, I don't agree with that. I think it's an abomination. It's not about that. It's about your child. I've got, I've got one of the churches connected to me down in Houston back in 2019. Uh, the pastor and the associate pastor who are sons in the faith to me, they took a bunch of people from the church down in June to the Houston Gay Pride Parade. And they set up tables with water on it directly across from the three guys with bullhorns screaming, God hates queers. And you're all going to fry. And the pastors wore T-shirts that said, Pastor Hugs. The women wore T-shirts that said, Mom Hugs. The men wore T-shirts that said, Dad Hugs. I got a call about 10 o'clock that night from my son in the Lord. He was sobbing. He said, I experienced Jesus today. In a way I've never experienced him. He said, he said, he said, these LGBTQ people would walk by and they'd see pastor hugs and their lips would start quivering and their knees would start would start going because they'd been ostracized by their faith community. And they came and fell in my arms just sobbing. He said, My shirt is drenched with the tears of the lepers of our culture. So let me ask you a question. Which one would Jesus be? Would Jesus be the one giving water and hugs, or would he be the one with the bullhorn? I think Peter would be the one with the bullhorn. Listen, I'm not talking about you having to agree with how people think or even how they live. That's not the point. The point is our job is to radically love. Literally, I know parents that have not talked to some of their kids for more than 20 years because of some of this stuff, because we're right and they're wrong and you're totally not in relationship and pagans are kinder than you. It's called religion on steroids. We had a young couple that started attending our church in Michigan. They were engaged and they came out of a, they came out of a, a very legalistic Pentecostal culture. And when they told their pastor that they were leaving and coming to our church, the pastor started tearing into them and said, well, they don't baptize right over there. And so you're going to hell. Then they went and told her mom and dad and her mom and dad immediately kicked her out of the house, said they weren't going to pay for her wedding, which was in four months and told her that they weren't coming to the wedding. I, four months later had to walk her down the aisle. I had to walk her down the aisle. And, and the parents were there. The dad was sitting in the second row. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. The sword almost came out. I mean, I'm walking with his daughter, and I'm walking by him. I wanted to smack him upside the head so hard because nobody could walk my daughter down the aisle with me sitting there. That's, that's some fighting words right there. That's my baby girl. I'm walking her down the aisle. Are you kidding me? That's called religion on steroids. You're going to let another man walk your daughter down the aisle because you disagree with what church she goes to? Are you kidding me? Complete heathens don't treat their kids that way. But that's what happens when you make up your mind to be biblical and not Christ-like. We take out that sword rather than keeping it in the sheath. I want to. I want. I want to encourage you guys. Listen, I'm. I'm. Not, I'm not here to preach at you. I'm just telling you, all of us struggle with keeping that sword in the sheath. Because we all have opinions. I have people that follow me online and people will actually message me. They're like, man, we start following you because we love how you respond to the people that attack you. And I always respond back to them. I said, yeah, but what you're reading is my third response. (laughs) 
I said, my first response is you're an idiot. You know, you know, I mean, because I'm still, I'm still me. I'm still this personality. And I'll write out a whole response just because it makes me feel good. And the Holy Spirit will say, you can't press enter. Erase all that because you know that's not Christ-like. I know, but it felt good just to type it out. You respond so kindly to people. I was like, man, I'd love to tell you that that's just me 24-7, but I'm telling you, man, that sword still comes out sometimes. But we're not going to inherit the earth. Wielding that sword. We're going to inherit the earth by being loving enough and self-controlled enough and self-disciplined enough to keep the sword in the sheath and realize relationships are more important than rules. I just don't want to lose any more relationships because I felt I had to be right. I just, I, I refuse. I don't walk away from people. People walk away from me. I don't walk away. I've walked away from maybe one or two people in my life that were extremely toxic. And even to this day, if they called me today, we wouldn't have the same kind of relationship, but I'd love to have a meal with them. I had a man that betrayed me so horribly. It was one of the most miserable things I ever experienced. Tore me to pieces. But even to this day, I don't feel any angst towards him. I continually prayed that he wouldn't, he wouldn't reap what he sowed. And he has, and it grieves me. It grieves me. But if he called me tomorrow and said, could we have a meal? I said, man, I'd love to. I'd love to. You know, we're not, never going to be what it was, but my heart for you is I can be right and completely miss the whole point. Peter put away, Peter put away the sword. Peter put the sword back in the sheath. All of us right now can probably think of a few things where we've taken out the sword and it didn't bring healing. A lot of times it brought more reproach. I've realized in my life I'd rather have influence than be right. I'd rather be able to keep influence with you. I'm grateful that I've had so many pastors, sons and daughters come out to me before they came out to their parents. And I just cried with them on the phone. A young man from Detroit. I've known since he was four years old he was gay. I mean, all over him from the moment he was four. He finally came out. I was like, I'm not shocked, Jonathan. This is not a shock to anybody. And he said, but I've tried to commit suicide four times. I've begged God to take this from me. And I just sat on the phone and cried with him. I don't, I don't, I've never experienced that. I don't know what it means. But my job wasn't to try to be right at that moment. It wasn't to give him scripture. It wasn't to tell him where he was wrong. It was just to be there and to love him. His dad looked at him and said, you're the biggest disappointment of my life. And he told me crying. I said, your dad didn't mean that. Your dad was just speaking out of his own hurt. That's not your dad's heart. And, and they've restored the relationship since. I said, don't, don't hold that against your dad. That was just his first response. He's, he's, he's afraid. He doesn't know how to respond. Do you want to be right? Or do you want to be in relationship? The meek inherit the earth. Do you want to be Peter or Jesus? I'll take Jesus. God bless Peter, but I don't want to be Peter. 
because I was Peter for a lot of years, and it led to nothing but pain. And when I made up my mind to be more like Jesus, you want to fight me? You win. Knock yourself out. Put the sword back in the sheath. Bow your heads a moment, would you? Father, I thank you today. Lord, I, I thank you that on the cross you did not take out the sword. You could have. If there's anybody that could have wielded the sword, your message was clearly enemy love, clearly nonviolent. You don't give us permission, period, to take up the sword. You said that you came with a sword, but that was a sword that came against religion, not against humans. That was a sword that was against the law, not against people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not with other humans. It's with thought processes. It's with principles. It's with the things that are behind what people do. If we could ever find out why they're doing what they're doing rather than just what they're doing, we might have empathy and bring healing. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to live more like Jesus. Well, thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Now, would you do something just where you're sitting? Would you just, just kind of put your arms out like this, like you're in a receiving mode? I want you to take one of your hands, and I want you to put them up to your right ear. Put one of your hands up to your right ear. And, and I want to pray this over you. Father, in Jesus' name, I, I ask that you heal the hearing of your sons and daughters. Lord, heal us from the cuts and the wounds that religion has brought on us. And I ask, help us to forgive the Peters that cut off our confidence in you and our trust and our faith. And rather than tell us who we were in you, they, they were reminding us of who we were not. And just heal the wounds that have kept our faith from truly manifesting and growing to where it needs to be. I ask Holy Spirit, that you help us and teach us what it means to be meek. We want to inherit the earth. We want to see lives transformed, but it's not going to happen by might and power and authority. It's going to happen by love and service. I ask, Lord, that you would restore relationships. I ask for relationships between parents and children, spouses, relationships between brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and family members, employers, employees, neighbors, Lord, relationships that are right now have breaches in them. I ask that you help us to humble ourselves and simply make up our mind to be the bigger person and not worry about being right, but be in relationship. Show us that it's not for just that other person. It's for us. It brings healing and grace and strength to us. And we'll thank you for it, Father. Thank you. Thank you for healing our hearing and our trust and our confidence. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And let me release just a few things to a few of you that the Holy Spirit spoke to me as I was preaching. I, I, I kept hearing this. I mentioned this to you in the truck but, uh, man, it, it, it's just been stirring in me as I was trying to take a nap. I, I, I got a few winks, but there was stuff stirring in me about tonight. 
And, you know, I, I, I kept seeing, you know, of course, you guys are in this season of transition. And I remember several years ago, I was laying in bed and the word transition, it was almost like it was in a dictionary, you know, and I, I, I what I was seeing was tran-sit-ion. Tran comes from train or movement. In the movement or in the, in the, in the transition, make sure you sit on it. Be like Fonzie. All right, everybody in a 35, Google that later. Uh, just good old happy days. Be like Fonzie and sit on, or in other words, in the movement, rest. And trust that Father is working it all out because this is a season not of retiring, but this is a season of refiring. It's a transition and a shifting into the next season. And some of your most fruitful years are not behind you. Some of your most fruitful years are in front of you because there's sons and daughters that are going to come and fill that place up, that you have that big old place, not just to make some money. And that's, thank God for that. That's a blessing, especially in this next season. But, but there's so many that are going to come and sit at your feet because of the heart that Father's dropped in both of you. And this is a season where Father's going to open up some crazy doors. I mean, some stuff's going to happen, and it's not just going to be way off. There's some stuff's going to happen, like, really quick, where you're just going to shake your head, like, how in the world would that even happen? But this is a refiring. It's, it's, it's the spirit of Caleb, and this is what I saw on both of you. Caleb said, I'm 85, but I'm as strong now as I was back then. Both to go out and to go into war, therefore, give me my mountain. Not, not let me go sit on the mountain, not speak the mountain away, because that's, that's the lazy church. The lazy church wants Mark 11, 23 through 24. We just want to speak to the mountain and it gets cast into the sea. The problem is when a mountain gets thrown into a sea, it becomes an island. And because you never conquered it and dealt with it, 20 years later, you get in a boat and you run back into it someday. And that's what's happened to a lot of these preachers that never dealt with their stuff. They didn't conquer the mountain. They just spoke it out of the way for a season, but never actually dealt with it. And, and this is a season where you have a heart of Caleb that says, give me my mountains. I'm going to climb this thing, put it under my feet because then it never has any authority. And I'm going to be able to move forward in kingdom authority and life like never before. And all of the provision is going to supernaturally be there. Father just wants you know, just transit, I learned to sit and rest. Even financially, God said this to me many years ago, you know, uh, Jesus said, given it shall be given. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men fill up your lap. Well, there's only one way you can get your lap filled. You got to be sitting. And, and, and a lot of times we're not in the position for harvest, because we're running around like Haggai. We're, 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 we're trying to fill up our bags and there's holes in the bags because we're trying to do all this work. And the father says, listen, if you just sit, I'm going to send people to fill your lap up. And I just saw just Father filling your laps up with all the provision you'd ever. Would you mind stretch, stretching your hands towards them? Father, I, I just release a fresh grace over my friends. I bless this man of God, Father. I bless this woman of God. I thank you for this next season of their life, Father. Over these next few years, as you're causing them to learn to rest in the midst of transition, I thank you for incredible grace, just grace, 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 released in them and through them and all over them, Father. 
in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. I heard the same part of transition for you guys, but I kept hearing this this afternoon over and over and over and over again. And it's funny because normally when God speaks this to me, I'll hear over and over again, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. Instead, I kept hearing it is done, it is done, it is done, it is done, it is done. And I'm like, it is done. I mean, I normally say it is finished, but I mean, Father wants you to know it is done and he's completely got everything in your hands. He's completely got it all figured out. And, and, and as you learn, and, and, and this, is, this, this is just what I saw uh, to bring even clarity to you guys. The one thing that kept Timothy from functioning in his gift was intimidation and fear. And, and I just saw the Holy Spirit, and we're going to lay hands on you here in just a minute, because he said, uh, he said, listen, I see this unfeigned faith that I first saw in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. That word unfeigned literally is this unhypocritical faith because mama keeps it real. All right. I mean, you know, there's a faith sometimes that comes from mama, but there's something that happens when Paul came into Timothy's life as a father. It, it removed intimidation because he still said, stir up the gift that's within you. In other words, the gift isn't functioning. You got to stir it up. And the reason it needs to be stirred up is because God's not giving you a spirit of intimidation, of fear, but power, love, and soundness of mind. Literally, it's, it's God has given you the power, which, it was, which is uh, dunamis, to love, agape, and then when it says discipline, uh, it literally is uh, self-discipline or the disciplining actually of your mind. So he's given you the power or the authority to love, to protect your own mind. Because the struggle that we have sometimes is believing that we can, believing that we should. And it's not until Paul laid hands on Timothy, all of a sudden the intimidation was gone because there's something that, that there's something that happens. There is, there's a strength. The, I've said this for years that the, the criticism of a father cripples a son, but the encouragement of a father empowers one. And I just heard the father say, you got this. It's done. It is done. It is done. Everybody stretch your hands towards them. Father, I, I, I just, I curse fear, timidity, intimidation, Father, off of their lives. I thank you, Father, that you've called them for such a time as this. I thank you that you put all the right pieces around them. They're not on their own. They're not by themselves. And I just declare, Father, a fresh, holy boldness to rise up, to believe that they can, they will, they should, and that you've got all this in the palm of your hand. I thank you for that grace. I thank you for that grace. I call those gifts just stirred up, activated, coming alive in greater measure, Father, just on the inside of them, just releasing so much, releasing so much. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Um, uh, sis right here, what, what, what's your name? Diane. I'm Jamie. Nice to meet you, Diane. Um, I, 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 as I was preaching, every, t- every time, I, yeah, <laughs> that's all right. Just stomping on everything over here. Uh, but as, as I was preaching, every time I looked at you, I, I, I just I kept, I, I kept seeing that. I, I don't know what season you're in, uh, but you're, you're, in a, you're in a transitionary season yourself, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, why this and why that, and why, what, why where, what, when, how. I mean, just it, it's almost like uh, I'm seeing that verse in the Old Testament where it says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. 
and that that you're right in a season right now of like multiple decisions, trying to decide what to do here and what to do there. And is this making any sense at all? Because I have no idea what I'm talking. Okay, I always tell you I'm just the donkey. Okay, I just hopefully I hit it, but I have been a donkey many times, and I could have King James it because I've been that too. Uh, <laughs> and I'm I'm behaving myself, uh, but, but uh, uh, I I just heard the father say this. Listen, he's He's not only got all of this in the palm of his hand, he's not shocked. Uh, he, he, there's purpose in our pain. There's a future in our frustration. Uh, he knows not only the very hairs of your head, but he knows what's around the corner. And, and I just heard this. Um, just trust that he's got this next season completely already worked out for you. And, and I, I'm just hearing the Holy Spirit say this. It might sound funny, but I heard the Holy Spirit just say, chill. Okay. Uh, is that making sense to you? Just, just, just chill. Uh, it's time you start resting at night because your mind has been like going so crazy. You've had a hard time sleeping. It's been affecting you physically also. And I just heard the Lord say he gives rest to the, his beloved. And, and tonight's just going to be a season of rest and your mind calm down because just Papa's got it. He's got it all worked out. He's, he's still got a great future. You know, your best years aren't behind you. They're still in front of you. You're going to bring forth much fruit. I'm not going to say old age because the Bible says that. I'm going to say in your mature years. How's that? Amen. Because I'm, I'm old enough now that I don't like people saying old age anymore. I'm, not, I'm declaring he's renewing my youth like the eagles in Jesus' name. That's, that's my declaration. But everybody stretch your hands towards your father. I just released the grace for this season. Father, all the transition, everything that she's walking through, I just speak life and health and healing. Father, you know everything that you've got for her, everything that you've got in the palm. You've got her in the palm of your hand, and you've got everything taken care of. I thank you for just peace. I declare the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that right now when she can't figure it out, there's only one thing greater than understanding, and that's peace that goes beyond understanding. And I just release peace over her, Father, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Uh, I, I, I kept hearing this just to encourage you. It's a new day. It's a new way. And there's a pioneer spirit in you. It's a new day. It's a new way. There's a pioneer spirit in you. Uh, to, there's this Star Trek grace in you, like Captain Kirk to go where no woman uh, has, has gone before. And, and, and I just kept hearing the Father just say this. You know, there's incredible appointments that God has in our future. But sometimes what keeps us from future appointments is if we stay in disappointment. You know, anytime you put the word dis in front of a word, it means to undo. So like discord undoes cord, undoes the cord. Dysfunction undoes function. Disunity undoes unity. Discourage undoes courage. But disappointment can undo appointments. That, that sometimes, you know, it's, it's like, because uh, I'm telling you what I kept seeing. I kept seeing David uh, David is, he comes to Ziglag, and Ziglag actually is translated the place of winding or twisting or turning. I call it the turning point. Every one of us have that, that Ziglag moment where we feel like, uh, I mean, I, I know I went through this about 20 years ago where I literally, I'd lost everything. I mean, all my doors shut on me. I mean, I mean, literally, I mean, I was booked up for two and a half years and all of a sudden I was a heretic and everything got shut down on me. I mean, I had to start all over again. And in the process of all that, I felt like David, where David comes to Ziglag, he'd lost his, his, his family, lost his life, and he's crying, out to, he's crying out to God. But the scripture says that he encouraged himself in the Lord. That word encourage is the Hebrew word shazak. 
And it literally means he conquered himself. He forced himself. He made himself. Because sometimes we have to shazak ourselves. So, so, and encourage yourself doesn't mean that you have a positive confession fit in a mirror. You know, you're a winner. You got it. You can do this. That, that, that's not what encouraging yourself is. Literally, it's conquering ourself in, in the midst of everything that we go through. But if David would have stayed stuck in the disappointment at Ziglag, he was literally three days away. Three days later, he not only got everything back, but on the fourth day, he was crowned king of Judah. He was literally this close to his destiny. And if he would have stayed stuck in disappointment, it would have undone appointments. Now, this is the beautiful thing, that disappointment might undo an appointment for a season, but with God, it never goes away. It's just delayed. And he brings it full circle and brings things back around because he's awesome like that because he's a good dad. And so David, I still think would have got there. He might have just had to go around the mountain one more time or so and go through some things. But we all deal. Disappointment is going to come to all of us. If you're a human, welcome to disappointment but we can't stay stuck. It's moving forward because God's got some appointments for you in the future that are going to blow your mind. I mean, just blow your, your absolute mind. You're going to be like, how did I, how did this even happen? How did I even get in these things? Because everything, he doesn't plan stuff, but he works things together always for our good. And the purpose that he still have is huge. New day, new way, pioneer spirit. Everybody stretch your hands towards the Father. I just release a fresh grace on your daughter. You know what you've, God, for her, what you've spoken even in the past, but I thank you that you've got so much more in her future. I thank you for grace for her future. I thank you for healing. I thank you, Father, for her, her learning what it means to Father to truly be the meek, and she's going to inherit everything that you've got for her, Father. I thank you for that life that you demonstrate in us and to us and through us and how amazing you are truly Father, at that, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Uh, um, uh, right back here, uh, uh, you guys. Have I met you guys before? I, I didn't think so. Do, are you guys attend here? Are you visiting? You were birthed out of here. So are you ministers? Oh, all right. Well, that makes sense then. Okay. Um, <laughs> again, you know, sometimes you just see a little picture and then just open your mouth and stuff kind of just, just starts flowing. Um Man, I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I saw. I don't, I, don't, I don't know anything that's going on with you. I don't know anything. Uh, do, do you lead a church? Do you? Okay. I, I'm just going tell to you, tell you what I saw. You have, you've been in a season where you felt, you felt like, like, like this, like things were lopsided. Uh, it's because uh, you've had an Aaron or a her that rather than hold your arms up, pulled them down. Uh, uh, brought betrayal and brought frustration. And, and so you felt like things have been, you know, it's like when God told Moses, he said, I want you to go up to the mountain and I, and I want you to take Aaron and her. The problem is, is Moses was still doing the old model. He had the pastoral mindset of, 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 I call it fivefold man, you know, can leap over pews in a single bound. You open up a shirt, there's a big five right in the middle of it. Because the, the old system of church taught us that we had to be fivefold man. We had to have the revelation and the vision of an apostle. We had to prophesy like a prophet. We had to go get everybody saved like an evangelist. We had to love everybody like a pastor. We had to ground everybody like a teacher. And that's going to send you to the hospital. Uh, that, that, that will just send you to the hospital because nobody is all five. Jesus was the only one that was all five. And the reason, there's a reason why in one of the gospels, they weren't, they weren't just gambling over Jesus's seamless tunic. In one of the gospels, there were five different pieces of clothes at the foot of the cross because Jesus was the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. But on the cross, he divided himself up into five different functions. So nobody could ever claim to be him again. 
All right, so that we would all never be able to be independent, but that we would be interdependent, that we would still need one another. But Moses still had that mindset of the old wineskin, which was, all right, the pastor does everything. And then he gets wore out, and then everybody connected. Things start, things start fluttering and, and sometimes falling apart, and we're like trying to figure out what's going on. And the struggle is not Joshua and the warriors down in the valley that Moses is overseeing. The struggle is the Aaron's and hers are supposed to be there to lift up your arms. And I just saw... The Lord just letting you know that he's going to bring to you, he's going to bring to you some reinforcements that are going to hold your arms up in this, in this next season. Just, just trust that he's going to begin to lift your arms up again, that you, I, I, I'm just, I'm just hearing this and I want both of you to hear this. You are not failures. I just heard as you are, you are not failures. Just, just because you've been through some disappointments doesn't mean that you stop. That's a matter of fact, I tell people this all the time. I said, ministry is not for the emotionally weak. I'm just here to tell you right now, you better have some emotional fortitude if you're going to go out. That's why I try to talk people out of it as much as I can. Because if I can talk you out of it, that means someone, someone else could also. And, and, but I, the, what the Father has still for you guys' futures is it's getting that right team around you. The struggle has been getting the right people in the right places. And Father's going to begin to give you and release greater wisdom on who needs to be where and what needs to be in the right places. And those that have pulled your arms down, bless them. Bless them. Bless them. Not harm them. Bless them. They're, they're functioning out of their own hurt and their own wounds. They're projecting it on you. They've accused you of stuff that's their issues. It's their issues. I learned this a long time ago. When people manifest on me, it's not me they're manifesting on. They're projecting. It's classic psychology. They're projecting their issues, and they're calling me stuff that actually is who they are. I remember I, I, I had a man who betrayed me horribly. He was a son in the faith, and he was trying to convince everybody I was a narcissist. And I, I mean, literally, you got to understand something. I mean, when I get accused of something, I take it to heart. I mean, I remember I went online. I went online, and f you know you can go online, and you can find these te the narcissist tests. I actually went and filled out a narcissist test, and I got to the end of the test, and they said, you are not a narcissist because a narcissist would never do this test. <laughs> Cause they don't think they have a problem. And I was like, well, Lord, you could have put that at the beginning. I filled out this whole thing, <laughs> but, but it's one of those things where the truth is a young man that was calling me, that was the one that was, but he was projecting on me, his issues. It was his problem that he was pouring out of me. And, and father just wants you to know that he loves you and he's pleased with you and, and just watch what he's got for the future. He's far from done with you. He's far from done with you. And he just wanted to just comfort you. Uh, tonight, just let you know, listen, man, he's got this. And, and there's some folks that are going to come and lift them arms up high. Not that you don't have some already, but it's like, man, you're needing some reinforcements. And I just saw reinforcements are coming in Jesus' name. And hear this, like Gideon, decrease does not mean defeat. Sometimes, sometimes decrease means moving forward. Because sometimes, you know, I, I learned this, especially in sports. I mean, there was a season... Believe it or not, I could hang on the rim. Uh, I had some hops when I was 80, 90 pounds lighter uh, and, and much younger. And, and I, I remember, uh, you know, my, I blew my knee out. So I wasn't one of those guys that ran up and jumped off one leg. But when I took a step back and jumped off two legs, what looked like taking me backwards was actually propelling me to go higher. And sometimes what looks like a step back is actually propelling you even further forward. 
So everybody stretch your hands towards them. Father, I just release grace over your son and daughter. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, you, you've got everything in the palm of your hand. You know everything they need. You know everything they've dealt with, everything they're going through. And I just, I just release your goodness and your grace over them, Father. And I bless them in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lift your hands one more time, would you, Father? I just ask that you seal the seed of the word deep in every one of our hearts and minds. I, I ask that you seal this in our heart that when we're, we're driving down the road on the way home tonight and someone pulls out in front of us, help us to keep the sword in the sheath. Help us when our kids frustrate us tomorrow morning or in this next week that we keep the sword in the sheath and that we learn what it truly means to be meek. Seal that deep in our hearts and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. Well, listen, I'm, I'm going to turn this. Listen, th thank you for just putting up with all my carrying on. Uh, I had a blast today. I really did. I, I, I love to be in a house where I, I don't feel like I have to qualify every statement because y'all are used to good teaching around here. And I can just unload all this stuff and you just sit there and just <laughs> gobble it up. It's so fun. I tell you, it makes me want to keep going and going and going. But I'm like, no, we're going to, I don't want to wear everybody out at the same time either. But uh, I, I want to encourage you on, on the way out, if, if you haven't grabbed any of our materials, please check it out. Also, if you were here this morning and you wanted to still sponsor a child from a third world country, we have all of the, the packets back there. I tell you what, it's life changing to do that. I encourage uh, ministries to do it. A lot of times churches, their children's minister will sponsor a child and the kids, you know, all go together and they, and they start talking, you know, they, they send letters and everything to the kids. It's powerful stuff and life-changing. $38 a month transforms the life of a child and it's powerful, powerful stuff. So, but also on the way out, uh, going to receive an offering. And, and this is uh, what I wanted to all go towards tonight. About once or twice a month when I have like an evening service, I like to take the whole offering and put it specifically towards my mission trips. I'm getting ready here in March to go back to Europe again for almost 10 days uh, and preach in all kinds of places. Then uh, we're scheduled to go back to Ecuador again. Uh, I've been working on, I've been invited, I've been preaching in Chicago for years in all these African churches. Most of them are people from Ghana. Uh, that lead the churches. There's like 10 of them in, in, in Chicago. Every time I'm in Chicago, they have me come preach all week long and they wear me out and I have a blast with them and we have a good time. And so we're working on also going to Ghana. And when you go to third world countries, of course, uh, you don't go there to make money. Normally, you gotta you got to raise all your funds. you got to take care of the flights. And then because I travel full-time and 70% of my income comes through free will offerings from my traveling, I also then not only need to come up with what it costs for me to go, but then what, what I would have made if I would have been home where it's different if, you know, if I was like leading a church or something and got a salary, they'd pay me uh, even to do that. And so anything that you can do, the Holy Spirit to put on your heart to sow a substantial seed to help us with that. Uh, I mean, COVID costs all that to like pretty much go away because we had to use it all just to function at times during COVID. And we've been trying to fill that up again. So I don't have to travel around places and constantly be money raising because I'm not that guy. I don't like that. I don't like even talking about it. I will squeeze a nickel out of you to take care of an orphan in a third world country, but I have a hard time having people give me something. I, I just, I just, and I hate manipulation to the nth degree and just refuse to do it. But if you do me one more favor, would you just bow your head and just, just ask the Holy Spirit, uh, what he would want you to sow and give. The thing I, I love is the Holy Spirit knows 
what we are going to need eight months from now. And so he knows the seed that we sow today is something that we're going to need eight months from now. And so he'll, sometimes he'll tell us a certain amount or he'll tell us certain things and we don't even understand it, but it makes clear when we get to that next season of life. So Lord, I just ask that as your people give and they sow, uh, they'd help send me to the nations and carry this beautiful message of this beautiful gospel and this new covenant uh, that as they help me, that you also would help them, Lord, because you want all of us at one time or another to go to the nations as they help me go, that you're also going to open up doors for them to also go and be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And I thank you that you're going to bless your people abundantly for their giving. Thank you for meeting all of their needs and then some. And thank you for taking care of us because you've always done it for 32 years. You've been so faithful and we thank you for it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. We'll just set it there and just, um, you can throw it from where you sit, you can bring it up, uh, you can leave it on your seat, we'll collect it later. No, I can't admit that. But just as, as Jamie already said, this is a great opportunity just to sew in to what he's doing. He was telling me about this afternoon some of the things that are happening in Europe right now and, and as doors are opening there. And the message that you've heard this morning and this evening is what's changing the world right now. And people have been waiting for a long time to hear how good God is. And when they hear it, they respond and it's changing lives and it's changing nations. And uh, sowing in tonight is that opportunity to, to, you know, to go with him. So anyway, Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for all that you've done uh, through this morning this and this evening. Lord, we bless Jamie and all that you're doing with him. And Lord, uh, we just thank you for the offering tonight. And we give you glory that you are raising up people who carry your heart and your voice to the nations. Thank you, Jesus.